Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an associate producer of the documentary The Ghost of Richard Harris, which as of this weekend, starting today, Saturday, November the 12th, 2022, will get its Irish premiere. I also am interviewed in the film along with the likes of Russell Crowe, Stephen Ray and Vanessa Redgrave. I'm described on screen as biographer Joe Jackson, which to be more specific, probably should have said Richard Harris's biographer because published next Thursday, November the 19th, is my long overdue biography of the man, Richard Harris raising hell and reaching for heaven. I've made a few podcasts about how the book came about, but in this podcast, I'll focus more so on one particular aspect of Adrian Sibley's documentary, The Ghost of Richard Harris. Let me explain how tapes I made with Richard over a 15-year period ended up voicing the ghost. Back in 1987, after our first interview, Richard joked, you know more about me than I do, but then I forget half my fucking life because I was drunk half the time. And he then more seriously asked me to write what he called a skeleton script for the proposed update of his one-man show from the early 1970s. I did so with great delight. Because, as you shall see, that concert in 1972 had a profound effect on my life. Sadly, Richard never did again that one-man show, but in 1989, after reading a profile I wrote about him, he asked me to become his biographer. Richard loved in particular the way I stitched into the narrative of the article, after a story you'll hear later, a poem I first heard during his 1972 concert, which was called on the one-day dead face of my father. He said, when we do the book, it must be done like that. Sadly again, we never did what Richard came to call our book, but we recorded many tapes with it in mind, and frequently during, for example, an interview we did for the Irish Times in 1990, we agreed that a lot of what he said should be kept for the biography. Fast forward to 2015, 13 years after Richard's death, I made two one-hour documentaries for RTE Radio 1 in Ireland based on those tapes and that I called Richard Harris Revisited. A year later, I directed, produced and presented at the Richard Harris International Film Festival in Limerick a reading of what I called a play in the making, a tilt of the hat to Richard's favourite playwright Pirandello. It was based on those radio shows, and I was introduced on stage by Richard's son, Jared, who, also to my delight, lots of delight in this podcast, led the standing ovation afterwards. Jared then, unknown to me, passed the script of my show on to Adrian Sibley, who had talked with Richard in 1999 about making a TV documentary about his life. When Adrian realised I had those tapes, the idea for the documentary that is now called The Ghost of Richard Harris rose from the grave as it were. Adrian told me he chose my tapes to voice the ghost because, he said, they were the most revealing interviews Richard Harris ever did. And by the way, introducing me on stage, Jared Harris has said much the same thing. However, as anyone who works in the wonderful world of filmmaking will tell you, as indeed Richard does in my book, when he talks about the ferocious fights he had in relation to the movie The Field, people can go to war when it comes to the final edit of a film. But before I go any further, let me say I love the fact that Adrian's film does, to a degree better than any previous documentary, 
what I set out to do with my first Harris interview, and he wanted me to do with that one-man show and the book, namely, show the world there was more to the man than many thought. Even so, one cut in the final version of Sibley's film does not sit well with me at all. And, dare I say, probably would not sit well with the ghost of Richard Harris. It was a scene that was cut to make way for a further exploration of Richard's use of coke during the mid-70s. And by the way, I was told that everyone else involved in the film agreed with the cut. So, when I say what I'm about to say, I'm putting myself way out there on the limb. But so be it. I must be true to the fact that Richard revealed to me in 2001, a year before he died, that the wound in question was a central rupture in his psyche. Yet first, in order to set the scene, let's flash back, as I do in my book, to that night in 1972 when I saw Richard in concert in Dublin's Gaiety Theatre. In fact, in the book, I recreate this moment, which was seminal for me, by writing about it in the present tense. So let me do it again here. I'm a lifelong Richard Harris fan, who loves in particular his latest LP, My Boy, and I'm sitting in the Gaiety Theatre, secretly making a cassette recording of Richard's show. He's just finished showing us a funny sequence of clips of scenes that went wrong in films, such as when his wig fell off during a scene in A Man in the Wilderness. The laughter fades, the lights go low. He says, I'd like to read a few of my poems. The first is called On the One Day Dead Face of My Father. I went to England, and one time I came back, and he had died. Richard reads the poem. His voice is sad, solemn, darker than it has been all evening. My eyes are closed. I love poetry. I am breathing in every syllable. Richard reaches what seems to be the end of the poem. I have no idea what is about to happen. I'm about to burst into tears. Father, in your mind, and farther away I stay, marvel them, you cry. Hoping it's by and by, in your height, that I may grow in your marble sight. It's not time to make a change. Just relax. Take it slow. You're still young. That's your fault. But there's so much you have to know. Find a girl. Settle down. If you want to, you can marry. Look at me. I'm old, but I'm happy. I was once like you are now, and I know that it's not easy to be calm when you found something going on. But take your time, think a lot, think of all the things you've got. Hoping that by and by in your height, 
I may grow through your marble sight. What you heard there, apart from Richard finishing his poem and beginning to sing Father and Son, a song I loved by Cat Stevens, was me saying, Oh God, before I began to cry. Why did I say that? And why did I cry? Because as Richard finished reading his poem, which is a prayer to the corpse of his father, imploring him for the acceptance his son feels he never got in life, I saw the corpse of my own father, even though he was only 45, healthy and alive. I knew this was a premonition of his death. But it was a gift in disguise because we were fighting at the time and I decided to go home that night and try harder for this particular father and son. Fifteen years later, when Richard and I were talking about how a poem or a song created by one person can put a tongue to the silence of the pain of another, I told Harris what happened that night. He said, and by the way, Richard's reference here to father and son is not to the song, but to a play I once wrote, influenced by his version of the song, called by that name, sent to him in 1983, and that he said moved him deeply. Richard said, That is good for me to hear. I remember from father and son your story about my boy, but nobody before then, or since, ever told me such a story about the influence of one of my poems or songs. And why is this, as I said in the film, a central rupture in Richard's psyche? Now that's a long story, and probably best told in detail in a book. But let me sum it up this way. Richard once said to me that one of his great regrets was that he never had even one meaningful conversation with his father, Ivan. The fact that he didn't, determined that he would have countless such conversations with his own three sons. Indeed, Richard once told me a definitive story about he and his dad could not communicate verbally. It's a classic Irish story. I used it in that newspaper profile, and it's heartbreaking. I remembered, you know, I'm before my father died, we went for a walk. I said, let's go for a walk. He said, let's go for a walk, Dick. He said, okay, we went for a walk. And we walked from my house down to Hassett's Cross because my brother had married the daughter of a publican, owned a pub, Hassett's Pub, very famous pub opposite Thulman Park rugby ground. I remember walking with my father. It took us a long time to walk. And wondering, Jesus, we'll never get to this pub. I hope we get to this pub quick. I've got to have a drink. I don't want to say to this man. And he used the same thing. Strangers. We were both not knowing what to say to each other. It's funny. And he would say things like, that's Mrs. Mrs. O'Mara. Lovely house she's got there. Yes, Dad, it's a nice house. Hmm, right. Silence. Well, I wonder, what the, I wonder how long they'll last. Who, Dad? The people in this shop here. They're, good. They're, they're beginning to mix up there. They're mixing meal now, and they're not supposed to do that. They're selling flour and, uh, and, and nuts and bolts. That's against the law, you know. Oh, I see that. Pinter. Yeah. Pinteresque. Then we get to the bar, I think, great. I'll have a large whiskey now. I'll loosen up a bit. So I have a large vodka, and he's a whiskey. And we see, come on. And uh, there's a picture taken of us at that day, which someone sent me last year, gave me last year, and there it is. We looked, yet I'm sure great affection between us. 
but we looked two people yeah. trying very hard to sort of... Be father and son? That yeah, has... be father and son. Incidentally, during that 1990 interview, Richard had said he hoped that one day to come to terms with his troubled relationship with both his father and mother, who were both dead by then. In 2001, he told me he was still hoping to do that, but hadn't. This certainly became truly painfully aware to me at one point in terms of his father, after I asked Richard to read for a radio show we were making about his music and poetry on the one-day dead face of my father. As you'll hear, and how is this for cosmic synchronicity? Just like I'd burst into tears when Richard finished reading the poem that night in 72, now, before he finished reading it at the age of nearly 72, he broke down and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to cry, Joe. I knew this was the single most revealing moment I'd ever spent in the presence of Richard Harris. The man had become a boy again, which he was in so many ways. And I love the way Richard, true to his quintessentially Irish soul, after gesturing for me to turn back on the tape machine, moved immediately from feeling deep despair to telling a funny story. But as with so many of Richard Harris's funny stories, and indeed those told by we Irish, it had a dark underbelly. And I still wish that clip had been kept in Adrian Sibley's documentary, The Ghost of Richard Harris. But what follows, extended as one could not do in any 106-minute documentary, is the clip in question. I just came back from doing um, Mutiny on the Bounty. Just came back, and I was away, like, for a year. My brother called me, said, when are you going to come back? I haven't seen you for a while. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come over shortly. And then two days after that, and my brother called me, said he had died. So I flew back. All right, OK. But you got back in time, was it just after the funeral? Or? Oh, no, 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 I got back straight away, and he was he was lying in the bed. All right. He was he hadn't been uh, coffined yet. Or not. Yeah, he was still lying in my bed, strangely enough. It, was, oh. it used to be my tubercular bed. It's when I used to lie with tuberculosis. Okay, can you touch me now with your marble lips and increase your love? I remember actually when I kissed him, it was marble. The face was had turned to marble, obviously. I'll do it again. Can you touch me now with your marble lips and increase your love? Can you now touch me with your dead hand and direct me in my path? Now can you see me in your dead and say what is right? Though you know the answer now, now in your stillness, pave the way of my doing. Cold thoughts in your give creep away and stay in your marble walk and cold tombstone of your stare. Rise now above your mound and wound and see your son in your eye. Touch again the fond fountain of his flow and grow in the dead and deadly of your going. Can the paint and corrupt of your image color the size of my want? Can your star in its mighty walk balk my evolution in its stride? Guide me now in your silence. Cough up one silent prayer and stare at me again and see the woven fabric of your doing bend his knee and plea in the tired optic of your stare a prayer of acceptance. Father in your mound, and farther away I stay at marble length and cry, hoping that by and by in your height I may grow 
in your marble site. Sorry, I have to cry. It's okay, Richard. You read that poem there, and clearly you still feel a lot of the feelings that you felt when yeah, you composed it. Back. Do you feel that you finally got the prayer uh, that he finally, you, he has acknowledged you, that he has fully accepted you? I find it difficult. I find that relationship with uh, my parents difficult still, even at 70. I keep sort of combating myself. You know, one day I'll say, yes, it's, uh, I, I misread it or I misinterpreted it or whatever. And, uh, and then the next day I say, no, I didn't. I'll t- tell you a funny story. I was coming back. I was at a party that my my niece, Gillian D- Donnelly, threw for the family. My brother Noel was there and my brother Ivan was there and my nieces were all there. And they all began to talk and they were chatting about this and my father's sense of humour and the wonderful laughter in the house. I was sitting down there absolutely sort of mesmerised, stunned into silence. I said, Where, who are these people? What else are they talking about, right? <laughs> and so, so, and they were saying, what a wonderful sense of humour Dad had. And what a wonderful sense of humour Mum had. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, where was I in all of this time? <laughs> so Jacqueline Donnelly is driving me home and I'm staying, I'm staying at the, I'm staying at the Buckley Court, I suppose. He's driving me back because I don't drive, as you know. I've been suspended for life. And so I was, and I said, you know, I said, Jacqueline, it was a wonderful evening there. But I said, I don't recognise the, the recollections that they have of Overdale in our house and the, my father's sense of humour. I never, saw, I, I never saw him laugh in his life. And my mother's sense of humour. I said, I said, where the, I said, where was I? So she stopped the car and she says, Dick, don't you realise <laughs> that your father and mother began to laugh only after you left? <laughs> Oh my God! I said, "What are you talking about?" That's not your prayer of acceptance, no, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> she said, "So what are you talking?" She said, "Don't you know the trouble you caused them? Oh, okay. They didn't have a day's peace with you. You oh, kept right. running away from home. Yeah. You kept disobeying. You wouldn't go to school. Setting fire to toilets, barking Set, in the house, running around in like the house. <laughs> yeah, setting fire to toilets, being expelled from two schools before you were nine or eleven. She, she, she said, "The only time they began to laugh, Dick." And she said, it's true, you know. She said, when you when you came back, and, and and my mother came in one day to my father, he's in the business, and she calls him. She's crying on the phone. So he says, oh, I'll be back. He says, oh, it's a tragedy, it's a tragedy. He gets into his car, and he drives back. He says, Millie, which my mother's name was Mildred. He said, Millie, what's the matter? And she said, oh, Dick, did you, oh, what has he done now? Oh, did you hear about Dick? What has he done now? He wants to go to England to become an actor. Let him go. For God's sake, let him go. We'll have some peace in the house. She said, but but, but, but the money, where are we going to we gonna get the money to send him up? I'll mortgage the house. I'll sell the house. I'll sell my soul to the devil. He said, give him the money. Let him go. For God's sake, we'll have some peace here. All right. <laughs> but does that, does that, I mean, below that humor, I mean, does that hurt? No. Did he feel that really they were better off without you at home? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I was because... always, I mean, when I had to go back, you know, I was always welcome back. And I remember the first time I went back, he bawled crying at the door when he saw me coming in. I thought, I know it was all grief or, <laughs> yeah. or, 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 or regret or happiness. I've mortgaged everything and get rid of him and he's back. <laughs> Leave them laughing. This is Joe Jackson again. I thank you for listening to this podcast, which I guess you could say is an outtake from the movie The Ghost of Richard Harris, though I'd be more inclined to call this podcast The Soul 
of Richard Harris. And don't forget that my book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, the second part is the most important, will be available on November the 19th.